Okay. Now, what I have to tell you at the outset is that I come here from a very different background, which means that this is going to be a somewhat different kind of presentation and study session uh, than is what I think most of you who study here at Drisha are used to. I am by profession a scientist. Uh, I'm in the faculty of medicine at McGill University. Uh, I'm not a physician. I'm a PhD, and most of my time is spent doing research uh, in the field of gene cloning and gene analysis and developmental biology, so I have a fair understanding of the subject we're going to talk about today. Um, sort of as a hobby and as of a personal interest, um, I work on the interface between science, ethics, and religion. Um, and what I want to do today, uh, just so that you know what's going to happen, in the first part of the talk, I'm really going to present just some very basic science. You can interrupt me if you have questions, and we're going to take a break as soon as I finish that part, which may take 10, 20, or 25 minutes, I don't know. But I don't want to start discussing any of the ethical issues, which is going to be the bulk of the session afterwards, before laying out really what we're talking about. For many of you, if you have any kind of science background, it may be very repetitious, you can take a nap. But on the other hand, I really think it's important and between those of you in the room and myself, one of the reasons I think it's important, because from the other side, you very often have people who are looking at religious and ethical texts and trying to understand the ethics of medical issues without having invested enough time in the science and medicine aspect. And that really ruffles my feathers. Um, so I'm really delighted to have the opportunity to be here. And for those of you who really have uh, much more knowledge and experience in the learning area, uh, you can feel free to uh, hit upon me. So in its first incarnation, the presentation that I'm going to give today um, was a lecture that was called, Should We Be Moaning About Cloning? It was an invited lecture at one of the universities actually here in New York. And at that time, which was in 2002, uh, March of 2002, um, it was really much closer to the whole Dolly issue. Uh, and it was a very, this was for a lay audience, the, the lecture that was given. And the beginning hasn't really changed all that much. But a lot, in fact, really has changed uh, with respect to how we perceive cloning and the possibilities of cloning. So if there are no questions to begin with, I'm going to start. So as most of us here know, the worldwide debate or discussion about the ethics of cloning was actually triggered by the report in 1997 of the successful cloning of a sheep named Dolly. This real, real excitement and the belief that indeed organisms such as mammals could be cloned and you could have a life. And this led to both rational and serious discussion and also alarms and panics and predictions of imminent disaster. Perhaps more significantly, um, and we are particularly aware of this in Quebec, uh, which is the source of Rail and his company, the enterprise of cloning was undertaken both by scientists, mainstream scientists, and fringe religious groups who hired and worked with scientists. Why does or why should cloning engender such an emotional reaction? Perhaps because it appeals to the endless fascination with death and immortality, which I guess is the link between this and this morning's session. Cloning, as we all know and we've heard it many times, 
uh, raises the specter of Aldous Huxley's Brave New World, first published in 1932. In his world, industrial reproduction would replace natural reproduction in the form of Bakanovsky's process. One egg, one embryo, one adult. Normality. But a Bakanovskified egg, oh, it will bud, proliferate, divide from 8 to 96 buds, and every bud will grow into a perfectly formed embryo. And every embryo into a full-sized adult, making 96 humans where there was only one before. And so again, what we're going to do here today, taking a big leap from 1932, we're going to spend the next little bit of time talking about what cloning is and how it's done. We're going to describe and carefully distinguish, and if there's one science message you get today, I want it to be to be able to distinguish between what people refer to as human cloning, Human cloning includes both cloning of people, reproductive cloning, and it also includes a bulk of stem cell research, which involves cloning embryos for therapy. And I'm going to distinguish between that and what I will call molecular or gene cloning, because in the first case, you're just making copies, and in the second case, you're making changes. And this, I hope, will become clearer as we move forward. After we get through the science part, which I hope you'll bear with me, then we're going to begin to talk about uh, Jewish and ethical responses. And we're going to start with the initial response in the early years, which of course is four or five years ago here in the North American scene, which to a large extent means in New York. We're going to spend a fair amount of time to see how these issues were dealt with in Israel, which is of particular interest to me because certainly here any national, federal, state, or legislative bodies that deal with ethicists, of course, deal with ethicists representing um, science, but also ethicists representing Christianity, Islam, and Judaism, whereas in Israel, the only religious uh, contribution in terms of the ethical analysis is the Jewish religious analysis. And we're going to see how that feeds in to a very different approach. And I, I personally think that's very interesting. After we talk about what the individual uh, rabbis, ethicists have to say, we're going to talk about a little bit of just general ethical concerns that kind of cover the whole spectrum. And then at the very end, I guess I'm going to share with you some of my own perspective for those of you who last that long. Uh, clearly, I'm not going to offer any halachic decisions since that's not what I do. But I guess the, one of the reasons that I've become interested in the interface of science, ethics, uh, and religious theory is not only with respect to cloning, but I think it's really important to train a generation of either physicians, halachists, rabbis, who are sensitive and clearly understand uh, the issues that uh, ha are inherent in gene cloning, biotechnology, genetic testing, uh, predisposition to disease, a whole bunch of other stuff. And what I thought I would do before we actually start looking at the science is give you three cases, three vignettes, which will somehow set the stage for the ethical discussion that we're going to do a little bit later. The first one basically comes from an article that appeared in the Sunday New York Times magazine. I believe it was November 2001. The article was entitled, A Desire to Duplicate 
a grieving family hopes to replace a lost child, a genetics obsessed <coughs> sect dreams of achieving immortality. Is this how human cloning will begin? And this was the story described. Last year, a 10-month-old baby boy died in the hospital after a minor operation went wrong. The baby's parents, an American couple, had two other children and probably could have had another if they wished. Neither parent was infertile, and both were healthy and in their 30s. But they did not want another child. They wanted this child. And before long, they began to believe that the longing they felt was telling them something quite specific, that their dead baby's genes were crying out as a ghost might to express themselves again in this world. The idea preoccupied them that their little son's genotype deserved another chance, that other chance at an embodied human journey, that the child had disappeared by mistake and could be brought back by intention. Perhaps a more realistic situation, a desperate wish for continuity. Barbara and Jeffrey are 38 and 42 years old, respectively. Barbara is the only daughter, surviving daughter of Holocaust survivors. Her parents' siblings perished. Jeffrey and Barbara have been trying to have children for 10 years. Several attempts at in vitro fertilization were not successful. Barbara has heard about a new protocol for reproductive cloning. She's very excited about the possibility and very anxious to try it. She doesn't want to see her family line end. Adoption is therefore not an option for her. She has a reasonable background in Jewish sources and she is seeking an opinion from the rabbis. And one more. He dreams about walking. Saul has a rapidly progressing case of Parkinson's disease. Unfortunately, he no longer tolerates levodopa well and has experienced debilitating side effects. His children are devastated by his suffering. They have heard that scientists are working with genetically engineered cells that can be made to produce dopamine, the brain chemical that's not functioning in Parkinson's patients. They are aware of the hazards of transplants, but conventional therapies no longer offer their father any relief. He's becoming more and more dysfunctional. They would like to have their father's DNA used to generate stem cells for therapeutic cloning. So in order to examine the ethics of cloning, I'm first, as I said before, going to distinguish for you between two types of cloning. One again, which I will refer to as human cloning. And if we begin by just talking about cloning per se, the word cloning essentially means the production of an exact genetic copy of a gene, a cell, a plant, an animal, or a human being. Cloning simply means making multiple copies, each copy being identical to any one of the others. Now, it's important to keep in mind then when we talk about cloning that whereas the gene is the single simplest functional component of heredity, the human being 
is the most complex organism. And so when we talk about molecular cloning, we talk about making multiple copies of the simplest unit of heredity. When we talk about human cloning, we're talking about making multiple copies of people. And probably one of the most important points that actually attaches to the entire ethical discussion and debate has to do with the fact that in an organism such as human or a mammal, the cells of all organs and tissues have two copies of every gene. So there's a genome, which is essentially the DNA in the nucleus of the cell. It contains 46 chromosomes and either two X chromosomes if it's a female or an X and a Y chromosome if, if it's a male. And these 46 chromosomes are essentially 23 pairs. By contrast, the germ cells, which essentially means the egg and the sperm, each have 23 chromosomes and either X or Y. In other words, only one copy of each gene. So in order for an egg or a sperm to eventually become an embryo and develop into a complete organism, fertilization has to take place, the nuclei have to merge, you have to have a complete complement, namely 46 chromosomes and an X and X or an X and Y in order to develop uh, a, uh, an organism, whether it's a, a, a human being or any other animal. Now, human cloning, and this is really a very basic definition, is then designed to produce genetically identical copies of humans. Whereas molecular or gene cloning, again, making copies of the simplest or single unit of heredity, basically involves copying a single gene by making multiple copies of it in a cell. You need to use a cell to make the copies because the DNA without a cell is just not going to multiply. And that's generally done by basically isolating all the DNA from a cell, breaking it down with enzymes and using enzymes that will cut it into small enough pieces that each piece will only have one gene. You're so taking the whole DNA, it's huge, you cut it up into little pieces, each of which has one gene. But then you have to get this gene into a cell where you can make copies. And in order to do that, you basically put it into something we call a vector. And a vector is simply a delivery truck. It's a molecular delivery truck. Once we get a single gene into this vector, we're able to put it into cells. And once we have this vector with its gene in cells, we can make it make multiple copies and use it for whatever purposes we want to use it. How do we do human cloning? So we kind of have a, a basic idea of how we do gene cloning. The way we do human cloning is simply to take all of the DNA out of an embryo and replace it with all the DNA from a somatic cell. The embryo, which now has the DNA from another cell, is put into a surrogate mother and allowed to develop into an animal. So how would that work, for example, for human? Presuming we wanted to make a clone of this woman here, illustrated as number one, we could essentially take any cell. Obviously, we're not going to be taking her eggs, but we could take any somatic cell, 
And we then are going to isolate all the DNA from this cell. We're now going to take an egg that hasn't been fertilized from a second woman. Now, by the way, this doesn't have to be a woman. The DNA could come from a man or a woman. Now we're going to take an egg. This has to come from a woman. We're going to take all the natural DNA out of this egg. We're going to replace it with all the DNA which we've taken out of this first individual, man or woman. And since all of this DNA came from not an egg and not a sperm, it had basically two copies of every gene, 46 chromosomes, either XX if it was her or XY if it was a male. And we're now, we don't need to fertilize this egg. It already has a complete complement of DNA. We can then put it in to a surrogate mother, and that's simply surrogacy as it is with any other embryo, and the resulting baby, should this experiment be successful, will be a clone of this individual. Her genetic makeup will not be that of the egg because the DNA was taken out of that egg. It will be basically identical to the woman from whom the original donor DNA was taken. Is everybody clear with that? Great. Question. Right. They tried to clone what? Basically, you take DNA from one cell. Yes, no. Yes. Divide into two and yes, I know. Right. Yeah, as soon as the egg has been fertilized, and, it has. Yeah. Uh, you can uh, divide, take one of these yes, eggs you and could. try to uh, clone that. Well, if you take one of those cells, yes. you can have it grow into an individual. But if, the, if it's the DNA of the original egg and sperm, you're not really clone, you're not making a copy of something else. You're just allowing one of the four cells of the blastocyst to develop into a human being. Yeah. Yeah. So the ethical issues are really quite different than that. Yeah, you are having, let's say, two organisms that they have tried, but the cell that separated did not survive. Yeah. Yeah, because it doesn't work yet. Yeah, there was a question in the back. Yes, that we'll get to that. The question was, could you clone an individual using a cell from a, from an from someone who had died? It would have to be someone who had died very recently, and that I actually wasn't even going to talk about that. But because you raised the question. Uh, there's a very interesting ethical, well, it's really more halachic than ethical question. And remind me in the second part that comes up with the status of such an individual that's been cloned from dead tissue. Yeah. Yes, yes, and we'll talk about that later as well which is one of the reasons, again, this is a great audience, um, I personally, and this is, not a, this is my own personal opinion, is that it's really important for stem cell work, and this is for therapy, not for cloning people, that we use embryonic stem cells as opposed to adult stem cells, which of course is uh, not exactly what the President of the United States would like to do. Okay. Um, 
Any more questions so far? Okay. So, so this is how human cloning would be done. And again, we've already gone over this, since the nucleus of a somatic cell, unlike that of a sperm or egg, contains two copies of each gene, in order to clone a human being, we basically will only need this one cell. And human cloning then depends on a single genetic parent. Okay, how has human cloning been used, or how does one imagine human cloning will be used? There's actually more than two things uh, two ways it might be used, but they're really two important issues that we want to discuss later in the ethical section. Uh, and basically, they have to do with human cloning for reproduction and human cloning for therapeutics. Translate that into human cloning uh, to develop stem cells. So human cloning for reproduction, which of course hit the press again in 1997, uh, when Dolly was born, the first fully grown mammal to be cloned. Zachanis Faye, what happened to her? Um, and then a little bit later, Cece the cat. Mm -hmm. um, this was kind of the time when individuals began discussing the ethics of cloning uh, and the bandwagon of how and why this is going to be uh, the new era in the 21st century began to take place. But probably, perhaps more problematic, but in another sense, one that's much more ethically justifiable, uh, is the issue of using their, uh, cloning with a goal of therapy. In other words, cloning in order not to produce an entire organism, a whole animal or a whole person, but cloning in order to make a copy of a sick person's cells or tissues or organs for transplant. And this would be a tremendous improvement over standard transplants First of all, we wouldn't have to worry about availability because every person who's still alive has their own cells. Second of all, we wouldn't have to worry to a large extent that we don't know if entirely about rejection. The idea would be to take an, a cell from the individual, to clone it, and then when we would be able to do so in the lab, develop the, whether it's nerve cells or cardiac cells or kidney cells that this patient needs, put it back into the same person. So. From a dream perspective, it's really a wonderful dream. How would we do it? It's actually very similar to human reproductive cloning, but I am going to go through the steps because I really want everybody to know uh, what we're talking about here. So again, we're going to take the egg from one woman and we're going to drill a hole into the egg and again remove all the genetic material. This egg is now sitting in a culture dish in a laboratory. Okay, so as I said, the needle is used. We, we drill a hole into the egg and we take all of the genetic material out of the egg. As we did before for reproductive cloning, we now take all the genetic material from the single cell of another individual, be it male or female, and the same way we withdrew all the genetic material, we now inject all the genetic material. So again, we have an egg sitting in a petri dish in a laboratory, which came from woman A, and it now has all the genetic material from person B. Question. Yeah, the purpose of this would be to generate stem cells. Okay. 
which can be used to develop organs. I'm going to get. So basically, the whole same process. So far, exactly the same process. Yeah, as you will see. We're going to get to it. No, that's fine. Okay. So now what happens, instead of taking this egg that now has all the genetic material and implanting it into another person of surrogate for it to develop into a human being, we're going to do something else. We're going to leave that egg with its complete complement of DNA in this dish in the laboratory, and we're going to give it growth factors and other factors that stimulate it to divide right there in that dish. And that's what's going to happen. After 24 hours, you'll probably see the beginning of cell division. After four or five days, you're going to see something that looks like this, which is a hollow ball of about 100 cells. It holds a clump of cells that we refer to as the inner cell mass. And this inner cell mass is basically home-free. We've got stem cells. And so what happens now is that you can now take this inner cell mass and disperse it, and rather than continue growing that whole embryo, we're now going to take those cells and grow them in another dish, again in the laboratory, to develop stem cells. Now, what makes these stem cells so exciting and so important is the fact that each one of them has the potential to develop into any of the more differentiated mature cells that will eventually make up the organism. So any one of these cells is referred to as either pluripotent or totipotent. It can become a brain cell, a kidney cell, a heart cell, a skin cell, a foot cell, anything. And that's why they are such an incredibly valuable tool. And the hope, and it's really more than a hope because some of this can actually be done in the laboratory and some of it is actually being done in animals, is then by using the right kinds of factors, the right kinds of chemicals, and adding them into that dish to develop the kind of cells that you need. <coughs> Obviously, you're not going to develop all of them, but you might use a set of factors, one set of factors to stimulate the development of nerve cells, another set of factors to stimulate blood cells, a different set of factors to stimulate cardiac cells. All of this deriving from that original DNA that you took from the cell of a person who may be ill, but you didn't have to take the cell from the diseased tissue. You could take any cell from his body. And so the long-term goal of therapeutic cloning would be pretty straightforward. You have a patient, you do what we call a somatic cell biopsy, which simply means we're going to take not an egg or a sperm, but one of the somatic cells that has the entire complement of DNA. We're going to take an enucleated donor egg, a donor egg from which all the DNA has been removed. We're going to then do what we call nuclear transfer, namely taking all the DNA from these cells, or one of these cells, and introducing it into the enucleated donor oocyte. And then, as we described in the previous series of slides, we're going to grow these as embryonic stem cells in the laboratory, and then, stimulating it appropriately, the idea would 
B, to be able to develop any one of a variety of different cell types. It may take a different amount of time from now until the next decade or 20 years to be able to develop the individual cell types and then put it back into the patient who should be totally immunologically compatible. Question. So you can't grow stem cells except when in the human... Okay. In answer to your question, in the beginning, from a fertilized egg, you have a body of cells, that inner cell mass, that are essentially all stem cells. A grown individual does still have stem cells around. And there are situations where you can reverse a cell. In other words, there are ways in the laboratory, it's not so well worked out, where you can take a more mature cell and take it backwards. However, even before we discuss why it's not as good, I think you can almost imagine that it's not as good. And that there would be issues, in other words, that there are very clear issues that would distinguish between an embryonic stem cell that's X number of hours old and hasn't been exposed to anything or anybody and a cell that's been sitting around for a long time. My question is, is there any other way to grow them, or will there be any other way to grow them except putting them in a hollowed out reproductive cell? Well, what do you mean to grow them? In other words, the stem cells... I'm asking a question. I'm unclear about the relationship between what will become the stem cell and the host. In other words, you can't grow them outside. At this time, you can't grow them without the host. A stem cell is a cell. I don't know what you mean by a host. Yeah. You need that host. Will you always need that? Well, you need to make cells. Yes. Right. You'll make more cardiac cells. Well, if you take the DNA out of a cardiac cell, it may very well not survive. No, no. You have to take the entire DNA content of a nucleus. Because it has to have the entire genome. Well, pretty much the entire genome. You replace all the DNA. It's nuclear transfer. Everything. The nuclear content. The nuclear content. No, you're not transplanting the nuclear wall. It will work. Well, what would be the purpose? In theory, yes. In theory, yes. Oh, absolutely. 
She has a healthy egg. Yeah. yeah. Because remember, what you're withdrawing is the DNA from the nucleus. You're not withdrawing the nucleus. You're withdrawing. You, you, you keep repeating an enucleated egg. You're not actually repeating. Yeah. Right. Yeah. You're correct. Question. None. Well, let me put it this way. We, there, there has been no successful development of organs for humans. There, have been, there has been interest in using stem cells for Parkinson's, and there are some experiments which I, I will show you just as a... Uh, which literally weeks, it came out in December, in which actually a group in Israel has developed some stem cells which they've used uh, to treat Parkinson's in animals. And that's about as up-to-date as, uh, as, as things get. This is, this is, we're not talking about RNA at, at all. And this, we're talking about taking DNA and putting in DNA. RNA has to do with genes being expressed. And the RNA is not... In, yeah. DNA is double stranded. Yeah, I know, but you take the Yeah, you take the contents of the nucleus. So it's. Okay. So, pretty much we've been talking now about creating stem cells and reproductive cloning. Now, in both of these cases, and this is, you know, also I think a very important point for when one begins to discuss ethics. There's nothing revolutionary, and even less so in terms of reproductive cloning than therapeutic cloning, in the sense that you're not changing the genome at all. You're replacing genome of person A and putting into an egg the genome of person B, but you're not changing the genes. You're just making multiple copies. I'm not saying this isn't a big issue. I'm saying it's different from what I want to describe now in which you will be, in, in a sense, tampering with or changing or playing with or manipulating the genome. And so there are serious ethical issues with both, but they really are very different. And the questions are very different. So how would molecular cloning be used? Now remember, molecular cloning could involve taking cells out, manipulating them, and putting them back. Okay. Now, this in fact has been tried and didn't work, but I used it as an example. There's a disease which is called familial hypercholesterolemia. It's a rare, dominantly inherited disease, and it, it, uh, it's not all that common. But when people have this disease, they cannot metabolize cholesterol, to the extent that they're getting heart attacks in the teenage years. Very, very severe. It's just kind of sort of the end point of what we know is the uh, downside of very high cholesterol. We know what's wrong in these patients. What's missing is a receptor for low-density lipoprotein. It doesn't, the actual specifics aren't important. And so the question was raised, could we somehow replace the gene product, replace this receptor, 
so that these individuals would be able to metabolize cholesterol. And in fact, this was tried a number of years ago, and uh, it, it wasn't successful, but the experiment was done a while ago. And so the idea in this case was to take out a piece of the patient's liver, because the important place where this protein needed to work was in fact the liver, to treat the cells with a vector, remember a delivery truck carrying the right gene, uh, or a normal copy of the gene that makes this protein, and then the liver cells that take up the corrective gene and would be able to make the product would then be re-implanted into the patient. And so, again, in, in an illustrative fashion, you would take out a piece of the liver from the patient that is ill, you would grow these liver cells or hepatocytes, as they're called, in a culture, you would take one of those vectors that has a normal, healthy copy of this LDL receptor, put it into liver cells, let it make lots of copies. This is, remember, gene amplification. But now we've changed the genome of this, of this person's hepatocytes. He now has a gene that wasn't there originally. And then re-implant these cells back into the patient's liver and hope that it'll work. And so the essential difference here is that we haven't just taken out cells and put back cells. We've taken out cells and we've actually played with the DNA inside of them. Okay. So what I would like to do now, that kind of ends the description. And the next section, we're really going to get into the discussion of ethical issues. And we're going to again deal with the ethical issues, and in particular Jewish ethical issues, uh, with respect to molecular cloning and with respect to human cloning, both as it's being discussed in terms of reproduction and as it's being discussed in terms of therapeutics. So what I'd like to do is maybe take, if, if there are any more questions, take that. Take maybe a five, ten minute break, and I'm going to give out the handouts. Question. Um, in hypercholesterolemia, can it be treated by uh, liver transplant? Uh, it's, it's very hard to treat because by the time, these patients are very sick. Um, and it can, but for in general, liver transplant isn't that successful. So with a patient who's already been not metabolizing cholesterol well for their entire life, uh, you can do it, but the outcome is not great. Well, the problem of the, the main area of metabolism is in the liver of the cholesterol. Yeah. Any other questions? Okay, so let's take a short break, and I'm going to get the handouts. <laughs> yeah, this is me. No, I haven't seen it. Betty really. just came this week. I know, but I, I haven't, I haven't seen it yet, and I didn't get to it. So great. Um, right. So you get to. But we're doing no, no, a fair amount of material that's not here. I haven't seen it, but it looks nice. But I will give you. Well, I'll tell you what. This one I'll get another one. Okay. <laughs> I actually have a question. Um, sure. And she said that they actually just very recently um, found out that you could also use some fat cells instead of embryonic cells to create, um, you don't know, fat cells. Yeah, she said, said that there's like no, like, I was on that. There are some that appear in the yeah. Yeah. I believe you. I'm just not. You don't, you don't know. Okay. Yeah. When cancer patients 
Supposedly, they succeed in Mexico. That's right. Yeah, I know. Yeah. I'll give you one's own adrenal. Absolutely. The question is, uh, um, how do you stimulate a pluripotential cell to turn into a beta cell that is going to be uh, acceptable by this person's pancreas? Mm-hmm. And the answer is, we don't know. Okay. I just wondered whether there's already. Well, no, 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 there are, there are attempts, and, you know, there are things that work, but there's certainly, I wouldn't say there's a take an environment of pancreatic cells uh, 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 growing along with it in, in the, in the uh, ambient tomorrow. Oh, yes. I and know. it's not all next year. Hype, all the hype that you hear about the potential cures uh, it's a long way off. However, I, I, I'm now talking about my own personal belief, is that if a great deal was invested... Oh. Not in reproductive cloning, but, but in working with but embryonic stem cells, we would get there. Maybe it would yeah, take 50 years, but we are so, so naive and, and so pristine. Exactly. Because uh, uh, any of the cloning that was the re- reproductive cloning that has supposedly succeeded with lower animals uh, has been ephemeral at best. And and with the higher animals, these animals get sick. Get very quickly. Up. I know. I, know. I think they've gone as far as beef. Some cats, yes, which don't last very long. They don't last. Yes, and they're developing to speed up. And they're yeah, like but you're out. starting with a compromised cell to begin with, yeah, which has undergone God knows what kind of environmental change. And they... Um, when you were sitting there and giving an example of a man who had Now, which one is kind of spelling out? 
medical school. Well, that's pretty amazing. That's pretty But you can also get, I mean, it's not quite the same, but you can get. But you also have, you can get the stem cells. I actually don't have any of them. And they are not being These are my copies. Yeah, with the it can come from any and, and but then the embryonic does as well. The embryonic In terms of the DNA content. Right. Yeah. So if you take one out from one kidney cell, right. and you change the genetic makeup, like you were talking about in the last question, yeah, right. And then you put it back in. Then you have some cells that are have different Doing it now, he's actually doing right through residency. 
Um, in Quincy, he's doing that all over. But yeah, he was in. Uh, I forget who the like head of the department is. But she's like a Dutch lady. But she's yeah. Identical. Yes, it's translation. So you won't be missing anything if you don't have yeah. the Hebrew other than the chance to read it in Hebrew. For the, for the general one that looks like this, that's in Hebrew, and a lot of the translation is my own translation. Some of it is was that. translated. If anybody needs any of the English ones, we do have more of those here. Um, I want you to remind people to, uh, to shut off your cell phones, please. And I also wanted to welcome, send a special welcome, to our high school group. We have, uh, this year is the first year that Teresa has done um, a, a winter week for high school students. And we have a group of, how many students do we have here, Wendy? 13. 13. Lucky 13. And uh, we hope that you'll all come back for our summer high school program. If anybody here knows any prospective candidates for the, for the high school program, Wendy Amsalom, who's standing there clutching coffee, which I may grab from her at any moment, um, is Wendy is the director of the high school program and has run this winter program. We'll be running the summer program. Um, I also want you to extend to everyone. We have our, our new spring catalog has just come out a couple of days ago. We have it outside. If anyone has any questions about any of our programs, I'd be happy to answer them for you after this program. So has, uh, how many people here have learned how to clone? <laughs> all right, okay. So we'll invite all of you back, because some of us need to be cloned sometimes. So are we ready? For okay, thank you. Oh, it's magic that summer. Wow. Okay. Um, since I don't do this very often, how many people felt relatively comfortable with the material we've done so far? Fantastic. Thank you. Okay. So now we can get into the, uh, I guess, serious business of what Drisha does. So we're going to start by asking the question, what was the early rabbinic reaction to all of this stuff? Which, as I said, basically became an issue of debate in 1997 after Dolly was cloned. 
And one generally expects the public debate about ethical acceptability of things like cloning to mirror the classical confrontation of science and religion, uh, in which, which usually means that religion says no and science says yes. Curiously, the, the initial reaction of rabbis and Jewish ethicists, and this is across denominational lines and pretty much across the globe, had, was pretty permissive towards the question of cloning and even in terms of human cloning, a procedure which at least in the larger world is considered to be much more revolutionary than molecular cloning, though one could argue it either way. And the initial reaction, um, which I found actually a little bit disturbing, really had to do with technical things. Is what we're doing to carry out this process halakhically permissible? Are we actually carrying out procedures that are acceptable, or are there aspects of the procedures that are not acceptable? Um, and this will come out. Now, pretty much everything is in these notes, and pretty much everything is really translated. In some cases, it's loosely translated. It means I was really tired. Okay. Um, how many people here are comfortable in Hebrew? Is there anybody that's really uncomfortable in Hebrew? We're going to do everything in translation, but I would like to read the Hebrew as well. Um, so if those of you who aren't are going to be okay with it. Okay, so a source that's often quoted in support of cloning draws from a commentary on the Mishnah, which is known as Tiferet Yisrael in Yadayim, and it reads, Shekal davar shalone da ta'am le'asro, mutar hu b'li ta'am. Delahi skira ha-Torah dvarim ha-mutarim kulan, rak dvarim ha-asurim. Which translates, anything for which there is no reason to forbid is permissible with no need for justification. For the Torah has not enumerated all permissible things, rather forbidden ones. This is kind of a really very, very general statement. And if loosely interpreted, it's really, uh, you know, can allow quite radical things. And this is a quotation, and, and I actually heard it with my own ears. There was a conference that was held in 1998 in, in San Francisco. Uh, it's an organization called the uh, a Jewish Medical Ethics Organization. I'm not a member of it. Um, and I wasn't at the conference, but they sold tapes. And so I bought the tapes of anything that had to do with areas of my own interest. And one of the speakers who's actually involved, heavily involved with the organization is Rabbi Pinchas Lipner. Uh, he gave a talk which was entitled, Human Cloning, Is It Halakhically Permissible? And in the course of that talk, he said, and I quote, uh, and I have the tape, Jewish medical ethics is basically Jewish halakha. What is ethical in Judaism is legal, and what is legal is ethical. Think about that. We don't divide the two. Anything which is legal is ethical. Now, this may sound rather dramatic and a little bit frightening as it does, but in large measure, the early discussion among rabbis, both here and in Israel, but certainly here, um, even by towering figures and uh, Rabbi Tendler and Fred Rosner, a whole group of others, the early discussion, and I, I want to make sure that I say that, really focused to a very large extent 
to technical legal issues with respect to per permissibility of cloning procedures with respect to halakha. And so the kind of questions that were asked was, is cloning permitted according to halakha? Who is the clonies family? Because after all, if you're taking DNA from the cell of one individual and putting it into another individual, do you have issues of family relationships, sisters, brothers, cousins, aunts, and uncles, which can lead to all kinds of problematic situations? In other words, could the genetic parent of a clonee be considered to be a sibling or a parent? If the cell, if the DNA came from the mother's cell, it was then used as someone actually asked earlier and put in her own egg, re-implanted into somebody else. I'm sorry, do you have a question? Oh, somebody seems to be, are you okay? Yeah. Um, then the individual that would develop from such a clone, presuming reproductive cloning were possible, would be genetically identical to his or her, well, would be to her, would be to her mother. Wouldn't have her father DNA, would only have mother DNA. So is that person the mother's daughter, or is that person the mother's sister? And how do we address the absence of paternity? In other words, in situations where paternity is relevant as far as halakha is concerned, what happens if the child is essentially only the child of the mother or only the child of a woman? Or what is the clone's religious identity? If the DNA came from a cell, from a person that wasn't Jewish, do we need conversion? And these were the, some of the uh, issues that were raised. Yes? There, well, in general, um, in, in terms of halakhic questions, virtually none. It's, I mean, there were virtually no uh, situations where rabbis said you could not clone a gene in a bacteria. Or if there are, I'm certainly not familiar with them. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, now, I wasn't going to mention this, but because somebody asked the question, I, the only reason I was going not to talk about it was simply because we have a lot of material. One of the questions that actually was raised by someone by the name of Joel Jacobowitz in an article that appeared in the Torah Umada Journal in the <coughs> forum on cloning that, that was uh, in 2000 was the question, was the following question. As, as many of you may know and some of you may not know, when an individual dies, many of the cells are still, so to speak, alive for a while. And in fact, if you've been in a, you know, handled dead animals or seen a cadaver, you can see quivering, you can see limbs moving. Cells, a, a number of the cells are actually not dead. And that, of course, had to do with the whole issue of brainstem death in another situation with transplants. So the question was, what would happen if you took the DNA from the cell of an individual that had already died? And the reason that question came up is because there's a concept of ben pikuah, which has to do with animals. In the, in the question of shechita, in other words, what would happen of, a of, a, of an animal that's born from a mother that has already died, that, which doesn't require shechita, and then the, that, that born one doesn't require shechita, and it, it sort of, it, it travels down the line. 
And the question was raised, and, and I, it sounds facetious, but the question was raised as to whether we would have to consider the individual born from clone DNA taken from a dead individual as a person alive. <laughs> it sounds ridiculous. And, for example, wait, if the clone DNA ended up in a person, and if the person isn't considered alive, when that person comes in, does every calling have to leave the room? I mean, I wasn't really going to spend time on it because it's really more um, kind of a humor, humorous kind of question, but, but it was raised. And since somebody asked the question, um, I thought I would mention it. This Which animal doesn't require An animal born of an animal of a mother that had died is, is sort of not... Cons- I mean, I'm not an expert in this area, but it's called the Ben Pikua. And it does not, and, and you don't, you, you don't do shit on it, and you don't even. You can check the cow, which is pregnant. Oh, we have somebody to help us out. Great. And you find in the uterus a clearly born cat. Yeah. That cat does not have to be slaughtered ritually. Exactly. Exactly. It can be eaten. It has to be made kosher. Yeah. The uterus is dead when you take it out. The mother is already dead. Dead. The fetus. the fetus is alive. Doesn't require. Sh- right, but not only that. Right. Correct. But, but not only that, that applies to all the descendants of that animal as well. Yeah, right. All the descendants would not require We have Yeah, we have three questions. Uh, I really want to take all the questions, but I also want to cover a lot of the tools. Go ahead. Right. Well, there's, there's no issue of Benfikawagi. Yeah. The child has a different status. There's, there's an issue of status with cloning that will become very important. In other words, what is the status? And then, of course, there's the whole issue of the stage of the embryo and the status, which connects also to questions about abortion, as you know. I want to take the questions from two young women in the back who had their hands raised. Yes. Yeah, beige hat or tan hat. Cells from different animals? Right. I'm sorry, I didn't hear you. Could, I, 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 could you speak louder or could somebody repeat the question for me? She was talking about taking cells from two different animals and cloning them and creating a donkey. Yeah, yeah. jellyfish A hybrid, yeah. A mule. I'm sorry, a mule. A hybrid. It might work, I mean, but but what that's not really relevant to yeah. Is there another question in the back? I need you to speak up. Right. If the woman 
is died and the baby is born alive, that an individual has complete status as the woman's child in every possible way. And the father's child. So what if it was If the child lives, then the fetus was viable. That's the whole question. In other words, halakha has a status which is called a viable fetus. And the beauty of halakha is that the word viable simply means a fetus that can't survive. And if the seven-month fetus can survive, then that's the viable fetus. But if a five-month fetus can survive, then five months is viable. How does this apply to animals and why? Oh, but this is really the question of shita. Shita. It's a very specific question. And it's why I really didn't want to raise this up because it could take us really on a tangent that isn't all that important to the subject. Question. Not animals, human beings? Yes. So you said that if the fetus can survive on its own, it's a viable fetus that has a specific status. Does that still count if it's all machines and things like that? Yes. Okay. So theoretically, if you clone some, if you take some genes from someone who's dead, some DNA from someone who's dead, and you clone an individual gene, then the issue is that we're only talking now about taking the total DNA and making a person. Right. Didn't you just mention how the question was raised? The question was raised. Yeah. I mean, I only mentioned it because somebody had asked about that. And what I said was that someone had written an article in which he compared it to the men from Hawaii. Is it a good analogy? I don't think so. Okay. I don't really want to not take all questions. I just really would like to move on a little bit. But we can come back. Okay. So in this issue and in many other places, there have been a number of review articles which essentially deal with the halachic approach to the questions I just raised. And deliberately, I'm not going to spend the time discussing them. In other words, the halachic discussion about what the situation is with respect to the family, sibling, et cetera, all of these are issues that have been discussed and that are workable. They're technical issues which are workable. If anybody is really specifically interested in those kinds of questions, what I call technical or practical considerations, I would refer them to the article from which I'm going to quote now, which is an article by Rabbi Michael Broyd. He's written about this in a number of places, but one place is in that Toral Mato Journal forum. And what he says basically is, I am unaware of any substantive violation. Therefore, in those circumstances where the clonor, meaning the individual from whom the DNA has been taken, is a man, faced with the obligation to be fruitful and multiply, and he cannot fulfill the obligation otherwise, this seems to be the only way, whatever the situation is, to reproduce. Cloning can be classified as a good deed, a mitzvah. In those circumstances where the clonor, where the DNA used for the new individual is a woman, cloning can be classified as religiously neutral, because in his interpretation, obviously the commandment of pruravu amiluetaaretz does not fall upon women. 
So, essentially, the initial reaction uh, in, in the Jewish rabbinic leadership was very positive. Um, and it, it was kind of a real leap from a lot of material that had been written several years earlier in which the notion of reproductive cloning was considered to be way far out of the realm of possibility. And it's for that reason that I'm going to read you two quotations. These two quotations were essentially written within three years of one another. The first one reads, The cloning of man is prohibited as a violation of the divine arrangement of the world and the creation of man in the image of God. Pretty clear. The second there is no specific halakhic prohibition against attempting to clone a human being. Why do I show this to you? Because it's the same person. These two, I'm not obviously going to tell you who it is. I have them. These two quotations, three years apart from the same person. Yes? The first one came first. <laughs> In other words, once this sheep had been cloned and everybody all got excited and it seemed like this was something that was going to happen, it was very appealing. So, the way I see it, um, and though there are those who may disagree with me, but this fascination with the exciting possibility of cloning, at least initially, challenged the rabbis to deal with technical or what uh, Rabbi Soloveitchik occasionally referred to as topical issues of halacha rather than thematic ones, which is another term that he uses. The rush to get on this bandwagon of an exciting new science, exciting new possibilities, was reflected in these two quotations, in this change of opinion. And of course, the Jewish tradition does emphasize that God has given man the positive commandment to master the world. And human mastery over nature does involve, and we are mandated to approve upon nature to meet the needs of humanity, and this is considered to be both right and obligatory. The Torah also commands us, and I think this is on the next slide. Okay. God has given us a positive commandment to master the world, and they would see reproductive cloning as part of that and certainly in terms of permission if not only if, if not even obligatory and with respect to therapeutic cloning or molecular cloning for therapy that would fall under the the commandment to heal one uh, very important commandments and so the justification for cloning or the basic Torah sources for the justification of cloning stems from the idea that human cloning would allow reproduction in cases of infertile couples where the man is commanded to reproduce and that it might allow us to heal individuals for whom there would otherwise be no cure. And as I said earlier, I want to also spend a little bit of time discussing how this evolved in Israel. And that's what I'm going to do for the next uh, little bit of time. Now, in the handouts, there are basically three handouts. One of them has virtually all the sources we're going to go through in Hebrew and in English. The other two, which we're not going to read through, I just gave them for you, and you can look at them at your leisure, are essentially the Chok HaShibut, the law with respect to cloning, 
that was put out in 1997 in Israel and the English translation of that law and this law has essentially been now re it was a law that was put out for five years and it has just been renewed for five years with virtual very little change nuance change but the uh, but you'll see that it's it's kind of misleading because it says no but it basically hints yes so this in 1999 um, a law was put forth uh, in Israel which was called Chok Isur Hitavut Genetic Shibut Adam V'Shinui Genetic V'Ta'erev Revaya Prohibition of Genetic Intervention Human Cloning and Genetic uh, manipulation of, re of reproductive cells, which of course would be molecular cloning. And we'll go through some of the, um, essentially the important features. So the first, or seif number three, uh, says, During the course, well, throughout the period during which this law is enforced, no person shall perform any of the following acts. Shimush revayasha I'm sorry, shibut adam, human reproductive cloning, or shimush revayasha adam. So we can't have reproductive cloning, and one also cannot use reproductive cells that have undergone a permanent permanent intentional genetic modification putting in another gene, correcting the gene, though here we're also manipulating the genome in order to cause the creation of a person that seems pretty clear except that if you go down in the same law to Seif number 5 Chamesh, it says Al-Akhora'ot Seif Shalosh Notwithstanding, and those of us who live in Quebec know exactly what notwithstanding means. It basically means that if the federal government says you have to have democracy in Quebec, the provincial government can say, you don't have to have democracy in Quebec. In any event, notwithstanding the provisions of Section 3, the minister may, if he is of the opinion that human dignity will not be prejudiced, and upon the recommendation of the advisory committee, and upon such conditions as he may prescribe, permit through regulations the performance of specific kinds of genetic intervention that are prohibited under Section 3. So basically, it depends on the advisory committee and the SAR. And we're going to get to that at the very end, because now the big issue in Israel is, the, comp is the, um, the composition of the advisory committee, and there are some very real serious issues as far as that goes. Does this have the blessing of the... We're going to get to that. We're go yeah, I mean, I'm introducing this, and I'm going to get to the rabbinic part of this. So that was the cloning law that was 1997 and essentially reviewed in 2004 for another five years. In addition to that, the Bioethics Advisory Committee, the one that was referred to on the previous page, also put out in August of 2001 a DOAC or a Dinvachesbon 
um, with respect to stem cells. So this was Joach HaVadah HaMayaetet LeBioetika Shel HaAkademia HaLeumit HaYisraelit LeMadaim Al HaShimush B'Tai Geza Ubariim LeTzorche Nechkar Refui Again, the report of the Bioethics Advisory Committee to the Israel Academy of Sciences and Humanities. And this had to do specifically, or it focused, on the use of embryonic stem cells for research. And, the, and in this long report, of which I have copies, and, and it's available online, they listed 27 recommendations, among which 10 had to do with ethical restraints. Now, in developing the ethical restraints, they looked at you know general world literature, but they also had a section specifically devoted to halachic issues and claimed within this report that basically whatever they're recommending with respect to ethics fulfills uh, the requirements of halachist. And this, of course, in Israel, it's, it's, it's the Israeli rabbinate, it's orthodox. And the individual who was mandated to do this, his name is Mordechai Halpern, Rabbi Dr. Mordechai Halpern, who is in fact the advisor on medical issues um, to the uh, Knesset. And so he analyzed, you know, He basically asked the question about stem cell therapeutic research and looked at halachic considerations. And we're going to look at his maskanot, what his conclusions were. But before we do that, I thought it would be worthwhile to at least list what he outlines as six stages of maturation, because they're, of course, very relevant in terms of what conclusion one draws, and also relevant to some of the earlier questions. So the first stage is what we would call a pre-implantation embryo, and we that means because we talked earlier about this for, about this egg that has the complement of genes and then it's being implanted into a surrogate. So there is an embryo that has not yet been implanted. There is an embryo, not a pre-implantation embryo, but an embryo or an ubal that begins at implantation. There is another stage, ubal ba'al surat enosh. A fetus, which they, which is said to begin at 41 days of conception, and I'm not going to go into the issues. Uh, in fact, there is a recognizable image of an of an individual of a human before 41 days, or whether it's later. But uh, according to halacha, the day number 40 is a very important day, uh, and that would be part of another discussion. There's then what we call a viable fetus. Bar bar kiyum, namely a fetus that could survive if it was delivered. There's then a ubar or what's known as a dislodged fetus. And the last, of course, is a yelod or a neonate, the just born child. And it's when the child has moved just before birth. You know, when they're counting the 10 centimeters? Um, yeah, okay. So that was the background around which Rabbi Dr. Crawford, um, and of course I didn't give you all the information, um, described his conclusions. And he delivered a set of conclusions which were included in the decision, um, or at least the recommendations, of the advisory committee. Um, the first one says, "Al pi halacha yehudit, ein, ein, I'm sorry, have dale bein hashmadat ubar 
מבחינת קרם השתלה לבין מצולו לצורכי מחקר מדעי שגרתי, כל עוד פוטנציאל ההשתלה והלידה של העובר קיים, שמידתו ומצולו לצורכי מחקר אסורים מכל מקום, אלא אם הם נעשים למטרות פיקוח נפש. Always and out. It's maybe a good thing. Jewish law does not differentiate. Now here we're talking about destroying an embryo because there are going to be conclusions with respect to destroying an embryo and conclusions with respect to creating an embryo. So here Jewish law does not differentiate between destruction of an in vitro pre-implantation embryo and its use for routine scientific research. Unless done for the purpose of saving a life, so again, notwithstanding, both are forbidden as long as the embryo's potential for implantation exists. Berega she'ubar ha'mafkina ibda et potential ha'hashtala shelo ha'shimush bo l'torche mechkar hofech li'yot mutar gan im hu karuch b'peruko l'tarim nifradim an in vitro embryo that has lost its implantation potential may be kept for research even if the research involves extraction of cells as we saw in the case of stem cells which implies ending the embryo's capacity to develop. So all of this is with respect to the destruction of an embryo. Chal isur al shimush bar mushtal par kayama l'tzorche mechkar so now we're talking about creation. It is forbidden to use a viable implanted embryo for research purposes. The creation of such an embryo is prohibited, but then again we pull back. Nevertheless, the creation of an in vitro pre-implantation embryo for research should be allowed if it is probable that this research will help to save human life, and this includes creating embryos by the cloning technology. So again, you know, we have the kind of blanket prohibition, but then the notwithstanding clause. If you can directly, and, and there are various, obviously, interpretations to that, save a life, then um, we consider it permissible. Go to number two? Sure. Berega she'ubar, this one? As soon as the embryo has lost its implantation potential, it may be kept for research, even if the research involves the extraction and dispersion of the cells. Okay. So, basically, 
um, if we were to summarize this, we would say that from a legal point of view, while prohibiting the creation of a complete human being by reproductive cloning, um, it does not, the, Israel, the, Israel, the law in Israel does not rule out producing cloned embryos that will not be implanted. And in fact, the interpretation that producing cloned embryos will not, that will not be implanted is acceptable based on the interpretation of the Hok Hashibut was, was, was carried out as a legal investigation. In other words, there was a mandated investigation to interpret the meaning of the words in the law, and the decision was that in fact, it only applied to the creation of a complete human being. And the bioethics committee, or at least the interpretation of its report, basically is that it considers it ethically, and I quote from the report, it considers it ethically permissible to experiment with in vitro technologies to produce stem cells, such as reprogramming somatic cell nuclei by transfer into enucleated oocytes, so-called therapeutic cloning, um, and that this committee based its decision on other things, but also on Jewish law, as stated in above and quoted in the halakhic conclusions, which we just reviewed. So basically, I think everything we've talked about until now has what evolved around what I would say practical considerations, a lot of technical considerations, and legal considerations. And what I want to do now is switch to what I would, for want of a better word, call theological considerations. Um, does anybody have any questions? Is everybody ready to go on? Because I think I'd rather not take a break now, if that's okay with you. Okay. So, in a totally other context, uh, keep in mind that the chairman of this committee is a scientist. Uh, he's a scientist at the Weizmann Institute. He's won the Israel Prize for very different kinds of things. And that's one of the issues that has come up with respect to this committee is the question of vested interest. But in any event, there's also been a lot of discussion in Israel and coming out of the Department of Mishpat Ivri uh, at the Hebrew University and others of really much more global theological questions with respect to cloning. Uh, we're not going to go through all of it, but among the leaders in this discussion were Professor Nachum Rockover, who was the chair of Mishpat Ivri at the Hebrew University. I don't think he's in that position any longer. Uh, and the Abraham Steinberg, who is a physician in Israel, but who is uh, really world-renowned in terms of Jewish medical ethics. And they posed a series of questions which I think are interesting uh, and worth mentioning. Uh, even though the conclusions they come are really, in terms of permissibility, are really not very different from what we've seen so far. And so Professor Steinberg ra raises the following question. Does the technology of cloning human beings actually involve an assault on the belief in the creator of the world, who, of course, created man in the Genesis story? And he says... Absolutely not. Absolutely not, because in fact, cloning is not creation of yesh me'ayin. It's cloning of yesh me'ayesh. So we really aren't, in fact, creating de novo human beings. Next question. Ha'in yesh the oath the technologit shibut adam. 
משום איסור הלכתי השקפתי עקרוני להתערבות שלילית בבריאה. Okay, so maybe we're not usurping the creation of God since our cloning involves yesh meyesh and not uh, ex nihilo, but could the technology of cloning, if not perceived as usurping creation for God, could it be conceived of as a halachic or hashkafic transgression of interfering with God's creation? We may not be taking over, but would it be considered to be interfering? And he, again he says, Absolutely not. I think I put this up, but I'm not sure. Yeah, I did. Lefi hash, and most of this, by the way, is in your handout. Lefi hashkafat hayahadut yesh heter v'chovah l'ignot v'l'shaklel et ha'olam. The aim l'irot v'p'ilut shal shifmul hetarvut shlilit v'abriah ela adirava v'shum shutafut v'yubit v'ein ha'kadosh v'orofu l'bein adam. On the contrary, in Judaism, we're permitted, indeed we're obligated, to build upon and develop the world for the betterment of humanity. This is, of course, a loose translation as opposed to a precise one. Um, and this, this is reiterated almost in an almost identical fashion um, by uh, Professor Rockover, um, and I think this quote is from him. ללכת בכל דרכיו, מורה דרך לאדם מישראל לחובת היצירה, להיות שותף להקדוש ברוך הוא במעשה הראשון. is that the Jewish ideal, as it's described in, uh, in פרשת ראשית, that we should walk in his way, is basically inclusive of the children of Israel in creation, that we are in fact mandated to be partners with God and participate in creation and that that is the ideal that we strive for. And in fact, this discussion or this theological debate, which we think is now new and novel, about man's role in participating with creation, interfering with creation, it's really a very old discussion. And there are a lot of stories that touch upon this issue in the Mishnah and the Talmud, but I'm going to bring in just one example. And this is from the Medrash Tantuman, Sefer Vayikra. Sha'al Tunus Rufus Harashad Rabbi Akiva. Ho'il vehu chafetz v'milah, lama eno yotzei mahol me'e imo. And a lot of this discussion, by the way, is about circumcision. The wicked Tunus Rufus asked Rabbi Akiva, if God wished man to be circumcised, why does he not emerge so from the womb? Why do we need to take a, you know, a seven-day-old infant and, uh, and cut? Eight. Eight days. Eight days, sorry. You do know that. Amar la Akiva, the lama eno shalona tana Yisrael et Answers Rabbi Akiva, why does not man emerge circumcised? Because God gave the commandments to the Jewish people in order to purify us, which is kind of a vague uh, expression. And the Rav, Rabbi Salavachik, really comments on this exchange and it actually rewords it or explains it. He says, Bali Vidvar 
Circumcision, or milah, symbolizes the commandment found in Genesis that requires man to participate with God in creation. How? This is how Rabbi Soloveitchik explains the answer of Rabbi Akiva. If the circumcised organ is improved by removal of the foreskin, then why didn't God create man without the foreskin? How dare we interfere with the creation? Is not the practice of circumcision an assault on the perfection of God's creation? No. Heshiv lo Rabbi Akiva, Rabbi Soloveitchik explains. Achein aleinu lahosif mashahu al kol, or al ma, not al kol, al masha baraha kadosh barahu. Lishitatenu roim anu et atzmenu kiyotzrila. Ukeshitafim laha kadosh barahu b'maaseb reshiv. It is not only acceptable, but it's incumbent upon us to add to God's creation because we see ourselves as Shalom Elohim and as partnered with God in the creation in Genesis. And we see it not only as acceptable, but as our responsibility to invest ourselves in the improvement of natural phenomena. Next question. This is another question again with respect to the permissibility or and maybe perhaps the desire for cloning. So we've answered the question about, about trying to be creators, trying to replace God as creator. We're not doing that. We're not interfering with creation because God has actually mandated us to partner with him. So Steinberg and Rackle will raise the question, well, maybe we're not usurping creation and maybe we're not interfering with creation, but are we not somehow suggesting that our wisdom kind of outclasses God's wisdom if we're going to improve on, uh, on God's creation. And again, no, because man's wisdom is, of course, a product of God's wisdom and of the divine intelligence, which, of course, is inseparable uh, in, in, the, in the mind of these uh, from the Torah. And in fact, they bring the following quotation, Amar Rava, and again, we go back to early rabbinic sources. The Talmud teaches us that so similar is man to the Creator that were he to be free from sin, he too could create a universe. And so from this we can interpret 
that we are not kind of overstepping the bounds of the use of our wisdom uh, in the context of issues such as cloning or creation. So, in this little section that we've just reviewed, which basically represents the views of Rackover and Steinberg and a number of others, but I focused on their actual material, they basically come to the conclusion that cloning or creation uh, of humans by methods other than natural process of birth poses no threat to belief, does not in any way represent interference with God's work, or a shift in the adherence of basic values, and therefore is clearly permissible and in many instances may in fact be desirable so long as the enterprise does not involve prohibition in terms of the technology used, the part we took over that at the beginning, prohibition in, that the, outcome, in, an, in the outcome which cannot be prevented, in other words, there will be a problem with the outcome, or a surfeit of risk over benefit, which really is a time question, if it's not safe to do it now. And with respect to specific prohibitions, they raise a number of other interesting questions, and we'll mention one or two. Could cloning be considered a form of witchcraft? And he says... Steinberg says absolutely not because all of the cloning is really based on the development of scientific premises, exactly the opposite of witchcraft. Or could cloning be considered to have the status of a golem which is not treated as a human and may be permissibly killed? <coughs> I gave a talk similar to this at the Hebrew University two years ago and Moshe Edel was just particularly from a Kabbalistic perspective interested in this golem story. Anyway... Um, the answer, of course, is um, that it not, is not a golem. And I think some of this I didn't give you up here, but it's in your notes. It's clearly not a golem in the context of being able to be killed because the, the clone would actually have grown in a human. And the Torah tells us, Shofech dam ha'adam be'adam damo yishafech. He who spills the blood of a human in a human his blood will be spilled. And so all the prohibitions regarding killing a human would apply because even if it's a clone, it would be developing in a surrogate. It would be grown in a human just like any other baby. We have to reopen the discussion. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> Question. It just occurred to me as I was looking at all this stuff and saying, yeah, 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 very good. Boy, aren't they progressive? Think, my goodness, you know, in the, you're not allowed to graft plants. And yeah, so that's Kilayan. We're going to get to that. so much of a lower level, rafting plants, and it may seem like... like but that's mixing species. This, that so far, human reproductive cloning and human oh. therapeutic cloning, completely different from molecular, okay. does not involve mixing species. Okay. It's really... Okay. But we, we will talk about that, hopefully. Okay. So what is this whole question of the golem? Um, it's in your notes. I don't think it's on here. Yeah, so we can, if, if you would like, I can read it to you, but you can follow along in the source sure. material. Rava Baragabra, Shadre Lakame de Ravizera, Huka Mishtai Bahade, Vila Have Kamahade Le, Amarle, Minchevraya At, 
Hader Laafrech. Rabzeira Hayamidaber El Oto Adam, the Halalo Heshivlo, Amarlo Rabzeira, Min Hebraiaat, Min Hachavirimata, Shuvla Afarecha. Rava created a person. The Talmud tells us that Rava created a person and sent it to Rabzeira. Rabzeira spoke to the person, but it didn't respond. And Rabzeira said, You're a creation of one of my colleagues, return to your dust. How does the Talmud deal with this? And I'm going to read this to you from the notes. Ha-Talmud enomis aper lanu ketzad yatsar rava et oto adam. Ava mitoch sh'amar ravzeira la-oto yitzor shuv la-afarecha. Efshar sh'savar ravzeira shuhu notzar me'afar. So the Talmud doesn't tell us how he created the golem, but because ravzeira says go back to the dust, we can presume it was created from dust. Madua imkain hemit Ravzeira eta adam shenotzar al yedei Rava. If so, even so, why did Ravzeira think it was acceptable to kill the golem? Mishum shelo haytaderach ladaber im oto adam. Aleinu liskar, because you couldn't speak to this individual. Aleinu liskar, we should remember ki b'sha'asha haTorah misaperet al yitzirat adam harishon. When the Torah speaks of the creation of man in Bereshit, who omeret and God blew into it the spirit of life or whatever phrase you would like to use and the phrase Nishmat Chayim Targum Onkelis describes or interprets as Ruach Memalala Klomar Ruach Medaberet the ability to speak Heve Omer therefore one can say Dibur Hu HaMeafyein HaIkari Shel HaAdam that the ability to speak is what makes man unique and differentiates it from other more advanced mammals. They used to divide, and, and this I, I've heard, I've heard it even one better among the Haredi community, that there are different categories, so chai um, umidaber, Duman basically in earth, like a rock, so meaf, like a plant, chai could be amoeba, and and midaber being a human. And in certain Haredi communities, they say there are five, and the last one is Yehudi, but we're not going to discuss that today. Oh. Go ahead. Okay, so this is basically saying that what makes you human is Well, this is what... This is saying that in the Talmud there was a story and that it was considered that the reason Rabbi Zerah thought it was permitted to kill the golem was because he spoke to the golem and the golem didn't respond. And the interpretation of the, first, of the Genesis story in Bereshis suggests that being human is characterized by the ability to speak. So in answer to your question... Well... Well, that's a specific situation... Well, no, no, no. But the no, no. But the point is, we're not talking about the. Excuse me. We're not talking. You asked a question. We're not talking about the fact. Uh, we're talking about the general category of man-woman, as distinguished from other higher organisms by the fact that they can speak. The, so we're not talking about man here as one. We're talking about the species. 
the fact that there are individuals who can't speak, there might be a number of issues. They can't make a bracha. There are a lot of things they can't do. But they're still in the category of organisms who are, in principle, able to speak. They don't speak. Yeah. Um, yes? We're going to get to it. We're going to get to it. Um, she, the question was, you know, which is really moving in the direction that we're going. So you're asked a question at the right time, and that's why I'm, I'm not going to directly answer it now because we are going to talk about it. The question is, you know, all of this that we're talking about really has to do with a conceptual framework about the permissibility of cloning technically, practically, and the issue of whether doing something so novel and revolutionary is somehow interfering with creation as we understand it in Genesis. And her question is, well, put all that aside for a moment, you know, are we not, if we undertake reproductive cloning, you know, could we not make, you know, populations of individuals who are identical and who, is the, who are the individuals going to be? You know, it could be Hitler, it could be somebody else. You know, there are a lot of other issues um, that need to be raised. Uh, and I think that's what you were alluding to. Okay. So we put away the problem of a golem because since this individual will speak and will grow within a mother, it certainly would be considered uh, by all criteria as a human and have the status of a human, according to Allah. Again, the question of kilayim, which was raised, you know, when someone said you can't even graft and you can't mix linen and wool, and here you're creating people, and they say, no, it's not a problem. We're not mixing linen and wool here. We're creating people using the same material as people were made of. We're not mixing species. And, and this is really fascinating, could we have a question of Mamze Wood? So here's a situation. We have a couple, they're married, they can't have children. And let's say for some reason they can't use their own DNA. Maybe both of them are carrying, whatever the reason is. And so they elect to use the DNA from a third party. And the third party may also be married. And is there a question of Mamzerut? I mean, you know, there were many questions raised, even though, uh, you know, there were those that say Rabbi Feinstein permitted it, but we're not going to go into that discussion. The question of artificial insemination from a donor. But certainly it raised a lot of discussion. And so does this, would the situation in which the DNA would come from a third party and be used to create a new child in a woman who is married, but not to the individual from whom the DNA came, another male? Um, and the answer they say, absolutely not. Why absolutely not? Okay, that's also in your notes, but not up here. Because... Uh, and this, I think, Steinberg says very clearly, in the case of cloning, there's no foreign seed, only Homer Genetti. And he says, and I quote, Gam lemachmirim lahagdir mamzehut bahazra'ah melachutit ashaloha yoklal bederech shel bi'ah kederech kol ha'aretz yodu she'ein kan mamzehut shaharein kan klal zerazar. Even those who would forbid artificial insemination from a donor would acknowledge that in this case, since there's no sperm, there's just the DNA, there's no question of Mamzerut. 
I find I personally find that fascinating. Yeah, but the, the lady's grandparents are genetically those of the Well, if, if as you say, 
Yeah, it raises a lot of problems. You had a question. Yeah, Jack, they said that even if you get a DNA from a non Jewish person and you do the cloning, right? And a Jewish mother marries, right? Then the baby that is born, although it carries a DNA non Jewish. Right. Will be Jewish the, the, the baby may be Jewish. Jewish. Yeah, but the question that the, the the reason this question is raised is not to ask whether the baby is Jewish. It's to prevent situations where there would potentially be marriage between two Jews who aren't allowed to marry. So this child will be Jewish, but there's not going to be there's unlikely to be a sibling out there whom this child can't marry because the siblings would be not Jewish. But that's really not. Yeah. No, I'm just yeah. explaining yeah. that. Yeah. But biologically, it will not. Yeah. There will come a time that natural selection will say no, and will have nothing to well, do with that. We don't know. <laughs> I want to see that. Uh, okay. Okay. I'm going to review. I'm going to go over this, which is the last kind of general quote and then I want to switch gears for the last part so I think after we go over this text uh, I'd like to stretch for five minutes as everybody I mean I'm flexible today I'm in from out of town uh, I, I would like to finish I think I can make it by 4.30 so is everybody okay till 4.30? Oh, Great okay so I wanted to read this particular quote now Michelle Ravel is the chairman of the bioethics committee that prepared that report and that advises the Israeli government. Uh, Michel Ravel is a kippah shrugat. He's a modern Orthodox Jew. He's a scientist at Weizmann. He uh, basically developed interferon beta, for which he got the um, Israel Prize. Uh, and he has written, in fact, uh, there's a book that just came out in Israel in Hebrew on the subject of cloning and, and uh, a version of the article someone just showed me is in there in Hebrew, it was translated. Uh, and he wrote the introduction and the foreword to this book. I don't have a copy of it yet, even though uh, they sent it to me because I have an article in it, but, but I haven't seen it yet. And so I thought it would be nice to sort of wrap up this whole section before I get to a, a very different way of looking at things. Um, uh, with a quotation from him, which it's kind of busy on the screen, it just, it's just easier for me to read it. And, and this is what Professor Ravel says. Adam, and this is looking at it from his uh, religious perspective or his bio, or wearing his Mr. Bioethics hat as opposed to his science hat. <laughs> Uh, 
הכל לפי אחריותו של האדם. ולכן אסור לאדם לאכול מעץ הדת בלי שיאכל גם מעץ החיים, הוא התורה. כפי שמפורש באופן נפלא בספר הזוהר, הוצאת הסולם, היוצא מפרשו, וזה פרשו של הסולם, שההיתר ליהנות מהקדמה שבמדע מותנה בשמירה על ערכי המוסר והצדק. שעבורנו כיהודים שורשיהם הם בתורה, עץ חיים היא. זאת עבורי משמעותה העמוקה של הביואטיקה, הגדרת גבולות המותר על מנת שנוכל ליהנות מהטוב שבמדע. And translation. Man is partner in creation, and his mission is tikkun olam, rectifying the universe. And the removal of all pestilence and disease to free mankind for spiritual endeavor. From fire to cloning the nuclear energy, all technological advancement can serve purposes both good and evil. This reflects the deeper meaning of the tree of knowledge, good and evil. In other words, knowledge can serve both good and evil, all according to the responsible behavior of man. It is therefore forbidden to eat from the fruit of the tree of knowledge without at the same time eating from the tree of life, which for us is the Torah. As it is explained in an exquisite passage in the Zohar on the version of the Sulam, from this passage we learn that the permission to benefit from the advancement of science is predicated on the protection of moral and ethical values, which for us as Jews are rooted in the Torah, which we read, call a tchayami, a tree of life is she. This, for me, Ravel says, is the deeper significance of bioethics, establishing appropriate guidelines so that we may benefit from the good of science. I tried very hard to get a copy of the Sulam, and I couldn't. Uh, I was in three houses this weekend where there were a copy of the Zohar, but I, and I have one, but I couldn't get the Sulam. So that's his perspective. Um, and just to wrap up this section before I change directions, uh, I think you get the sense that pretty much all of the people we've looked at, whether they're looking at practical aspects, technical aspects, religious aspects, theological aspects, are essentially pretty positive on the conceptual. Obviously, they all are prepared to deal with safety and efficacy issues, but in terms of the concepts of cloning, uh, very positive. Um, I'm going to take a five-minute break. I need a glass of water, and I need to stretch. But let's keep it short, because uh, we've still got a ways to go. <laughs> okay. Start again. So if I could ask you to find your wherever it is you'd like to sit. I'm going to start. I'd be happy to entertain questions afterwards, but I know some of you are going to have to leave at 4.30, and I, and I wouldn't want you to leave before we do the last part because I'm going to take a somewhat radically different approach to things. So pretty much, um, I think if we had to sum up uh, what we've seen so far, basically what we've seen is if we can make it work and if we don't break any laws, it sounds like a really good thing. A more reserved approach towards cloning probably was articulated early on, because not too many uh, articulated early on, by 
Rabbi Jacobowitz of England, the former chief rabbi of England, who said, the Jewish Sabbath, the Shabbat, recalls not God as the creator, but as he who knew when to cease creating. And in fact, not the current chief rabbi, and the Rabbanut is really in term, uh, consistent with the positive perspective, but it's said that Rabbi Lau um, has stated that he doesn't accept cloning. Um, I don't have a direct quote. I have only a secondary. I'm sorry? You're not hearing me? Oh, it's been said, and I've read... I, the reason I didn't put the quote is because I've read it in a newspaper. I haven't actually seen in an original text that Rabbi Lau is, does not support cloning. Okay. But again, the emerging consensus would we appear to be a positive one. And so what I'd like to do now, I would like to repose the question and ask whether from Judaism's perspective, this notion of the legitimacy of humanity's drive, to control nature and to participate in creation, which has in fact informed both the halachic and theological reaction to cloning which we've been discussing so far, does the legitimacy of this drive to control creation, or as I would put it, the creation of human beings, or as I would put it, the production of human beings, the way Aldous Huxley described it, what does this mean? And to address this question, I want to draw on the two images of man which Rabbi Soloveitchik describes in The Lonely Man of Faith, which I presume many of you have read. In the essay, Rabbi Soloveitchik addresses the issue of man's dual role in the world, and he proposes that the two accounts of creation of man in chapters 1 and 2 of Breshit portray two types of man, or two sides of man, or two aspects of man which reflect two human ideals. The first, whom he refers to as Adam one, is guided by a quest for dignity, which is attained by mastery over one's environment. But the second, Adam two, is guided by a quest for redemption, and the quest for redemption is attained by control over oneself. I think it's fair to say that virtually, virtually all the rabbinic sources we've been talking about place cloning as permissible, but as permissible in the context of Adam 1, as permissible in the context of man as creator, Adam 1 fulfilling his mandate to master the world. Both the theological and halachic discussion thus have centered on how to assure that in the exercise of this mandate as Adam one, the halachic Jew does not violate specific prescriptives, issues of Isur Veheter. What I would like to suggest now is that, let at least for now, refocus the halachic discussion of cloning, and this could apply equally well to other questions arising from the rapid evolution of biotechnology to address some larger issues in Jewish medical societal ethics. Adam 1 is told to fill the earth and subdue it, while Adam 2 is told 
to cultivate the garden. And thus, we might view this latter discussion as the reflection and introspection of man in his Adam Tusa aspect, who retreats as protector and serves to cultivate the garden and to keep it. What are the ethical concerns, or what might be the ethical concerns of human cloning? A centerpiece of the ethical foundation of Western culture rests on the belief in the distinction of each individual. The Jewish vision conceives of the individual as Tselem Elohim, in the image of God. Many might argue that the creation of a genetic identical twin separated by time raises issues of identity and individuality. Would human cloning violate a moral right to a unique genetic identity? Scientists would argue that a genetic twin would have a unique identity because his or her individuality is determined not only by genes, but by the continuing and complex interactions of gene and environment throughout life. A second concern might have to do with the impact of human cloning on the family. With the knowledge that a child represents a unique copy of a single genetic parent, influence the child's self-perception and the parent's perception or expectations of the child. We might say that each child represents a close replica of his or her parents and shares that condition with all siblings. But the human clone, even unlike the twin, is a unique, identical genetic replica, not of a sibling, but of a parent, and stands alone in that condition. Thus, the cloned child might experience a very different self-perception and be encumbered by more demanding self-expectations. A third concern has to do with the impact on human diversity. Global health and safety depends, of course, on a diverse gene pool, and one might argue that human cloning would lead to the shrinking of a gene pool. We all know, probably most of us among, in this room, about the consequences of inbreeding at, that have affected so dramatically the Ashkenazi Jewish community, which harbors a number of gene mutations associated directly with genetic disease, such as Tay-Sachs disease and others, and also predispositions to disease such as uh, the BRCA1 and 2 genes in breast cancer. Arguments that claim that cloning would really only be carried out in very rare circumstances really beg the question. When the newness of an approach wears off in a world of increasing population density, it's really hard to know how popular the procedure would be or might be. A fourth issue, of course, has to do with the uses and abuses of eugenics, which was raised by the, um, an individual in the room a while earlier. And just as an aside, if any of you happen to be in Washington in the next little while, there's an excellent exhibit on the, at the Holocaust Museum uh, called Deadly Medicine, which really, I spent two and a half hours here when I was supposed to be at a cell biology meeting, because it goes through the entire history of the eugenic movement, not just Hitler. And in fact, I've, I've spoken with the um, curator because I want to develop some slides. And, and the, I, I mean, I think we all know what Mengele did. I'm, I'm not recommending it because for you to see what they did. I'm recommending it because you really get the sense of the slippery slope between suggestions of a positive thing that can lead to something very negative. Yes, a question there. Yes. 
Yeah, oh, sorry. Absolutely. That's right. You know, you begin with helping a family that has a child that's uh, very mentally handicapped and is going around impregnating women, and wouldn't it be better if we sterilized him? That's, you know, and it starts from there. And as I said, I don't want to go into the discussion here, but it's an absolutely marvelous exhibit. And, and there's also a, there's a virtual exhibit as well online. I've ordered the book, but I, I would highly recommend it. Yeah. Well, eugenics is basically, it's, it's manipulation of the genome in principle, in quotes, for the betterment of mankind. Um, so we've talked about a fourth issue was the question of eugenics uh, and its abuses. Given the opportunity to choose a genetic parent by a, a, quote, eugenic process, how would we make these choices? And of course, the fifth and perhaps the single universal concern that uh, really crosses all barriers are the issue of safety of, human of attempting to clone human beings uh, and several other important questions remain um, to be answered with respect to the feasibility and safety of cloning. You raised the issue um, of selection. Uh, there are some more even basic and fundamental questions than when we get to the issue of uh, selection. Can the procedure used to create Dolly actually be carried out successfully in humans? I mean, even Dolly was the one considered success out of more than 200 failures, and Dolly really didn't do all that well. At the age of six, Dolly was put to sleep because she looked like this. She was an absolute and total mess. Um, and uh, she didn't do all that well, and there's no reason to believe that another one will do better. Another question, will the... A phenomenon of genetic imprinting. What genetic imprinting means in a nutshell is that in, in an individual, not all, but there are a number of genes that will work differently depending on whether they've been inherited from your mother or from your father. So that genes that came to you through the sperm and genes that came to you through the egg in, in a number of instances will behave very distantly. This is a fascinating phenomenon because again, when they pass on to the next individual, it has to switch again. Right. There are situations in which changes in a specific gene will lead to one disease if you inherited that disease gene from the father and another disease if you inherited a faulty gene from the mother. So without I mean, those of you who want to come take a genetics course, you're all welcome. But without going into the, to the uh, specific issues, how will this issue of genetic imprinting, meaning that the genes are imprinted with something from the gender of the parent, be reprogrammed when all of the genes are coming from one individual who only has a single gender? How will the age, and this is a really crucial question, how will the age of the adult self if we use adult cells, from which the DNA was taken affects the developing and aging of a cloned child. Anyone who works in a laboratory knows that when you culture cells in a laboratory, they have a limited number of divisions left in them, and then they die. You can't have them perpetually dividing unless they're transformed cells, but primary cells in culture will have a limited number of divisions. And so if we're taking a cell from an individual who's now 40 or 60 and programmed maybe only to live until whatever, does that cell only have 
a much more limited lifespan than another cell. Yes, question. That is one interpretation of why Dolly aged so quickly, but there were probably multiple factors involved. Yes. She, no, no, no. She got an infection and died, but why she aged so rapidly? There are, there are a, a lot of things didn't work normally. Questions we don't know the answers to. I'm just giving you examples. I can't go through all of them. Okay. Another question. Are there species differences in the ability to achieve nuclear transfer? The fact that you can make a sheep or you can make a rat or you can make a mouse doesn't necessarily mean you can make a human in the same way that mutations in a particular gene in a mouse will give one disease and in a human will give another disease. And such differences are actually known to occur among the species. And very importantly, again, in the context of using adult cells, Will mutations accumulated in the transferred nucleus increase the risk of a cloned child to cancers or other diseases? A cell that's been sitting around in a person in New York City for 60 years has been exposed to a lot. Need I say more? So we might ask, who would be the subjects for investigating these questions? And who will be responsible for the experiments that don't work? Do we need to consider the possibility that even before the issue of selection, the experiment is currently fraught with enough danger and enough unknowns to beg for considerably more ethical consideration and justification. One might suggest that all of these concerns are an extension of ethical questions previously raised with respect to other reproductive technologies, such as in vitro fertilization, again, in a different environment, on child identity and family relationships and on normative attitudes shared by virtually all parents. We all want our children to be like ourselves, but not necessarily identical. But I would argue that matters of degree are not irrelevant here, and that cloning really represents a leap, a leap into a world of unknowns, unanticipated, unintended, and very possibly unwanted consequences. What about molecular cloning? With respect to molecular cloning and uh, uh, ethical issues, um, there are many, but I'm going to restrict the discussion as we have or along simply to issues involving genetic therapy because arguably that's where one really can find good reason to support the process. Gene therapy, as we know, refers, we all know this now, to the insertion of DNA or genes into cells of an individual uh, and in, in this context, used to cure a medical condition. It was originally conceived as an approach for treatment of inherited diseases. When the CF gene, the cystic fibrosis gene, was identified, or the Tay-Sachs disease gene was identified, the idea was that one day we would be able not to have to go through all that many Tay-Sachs couples go through now, but that we would just correct the gene, put in the good gene back into the parents, and they would have a healthy child. But that hasn't really turned out to be quite so simple. The most fundamental concerns, again, regarding gene therapy have to do with safety versus efficacy. New therapies are generally tested, all new therapies, not necessarily cloning, by evaluating the effects on cells in the laboratory and then on animals in the laboratory and then on humans in clinical trials. And only after the successful outcome of the tests in the cells and the tests in the animals do we then decide to carry out clinical trials and usually in very specific circumstances. But we've learned over time, as some of you may know, that there are no good animal models for many diseases 
for many inherited human diseases, uh, Tay-Sachs being an example. If you put a Tay-Sachs disease genes into a mouse, it doesn't get Tay-Sachs disease. And if you put a number of cystic fibrosis mutations into a mouse, it doesn't get cystic fibrosis. And in such circumstances, the real evaluation of clinical efficacy is going to be in a human laboratory. A second consideration, and this is really not glib, is the question of how we define disease. We might all agree that we want to prevent cancers and we want to treat cancers and we want to ameliorate the conditions of individuals who are ill. But can we apply any normative definition, and this applies to genetic testing as well, which I'm not dealing with today, but I will sometime if I get the opportunity, as to what extent of abnormality creates a disease for which genetic manipulation is appropriate. And again, this applies to what degree of abnormality makes it appropriate to do genetic testing and abort. A third issue, more specifically addressed by the scientific community, has been the question of germline versus somatic manipulation. If we change something in a somatic cell and then reintroduce that somatic cell to a patient to cure the individual, we're essentially dealing with the individual. If, however, we make a genetic change into a germline cell, namely an egg or a sperm, and put it back in the individual, we are then affecting that individual and all his descendants, and those descendants aren't being given a chance to say, hey, yeah, I really want to do this. At a time when a novel technology engenders such agonizing debate, it's also relevant to ask, who's doing it? And can we trust them? And this brings us back to our original family, which was described in the New York Times in November of 2001. Now, if all this had happened, say, five years ago, writes Margaret Talbot, their conviction might have soon faded away. The couple might have told their friends or family about the secret dream of resurrecting their baby's genes and been talked out of it or comforted in some other way. But it happened last year, which would have been 2000, at a moment when it was not at all hard to find other people who shared a kind of metaphysical faith in the power of genes. And among these individuals were a community known as the Raelians. Don't laugh. The Raelians, as you know, have this extraterrestrial notion that, uh, of foreign people, uh, and their mantra is cloning. And they formed a company called CloneAid.com, uh, led by their scientist, Therese Boisillier. The family that I spoke about that appeared in the New York Times article got together with the Raelians in order to develop a clone. Now, putting that family aside, we might all laugh, but then in 2003, the Raelians claimed to actually have cloned a young a little girl, a French scientist who's a member of the cult, and they, this Brigitte Boisillier, who is indeed a scientist, uh, claimed that the baby was born by cesarean section and the baby was doing well and there was a, a, a bit of a brouhaha. Of course, they were going to produce the DNA for testing. They never did. They claimed another one was born and that didn't work out. And the point is, we all know that this is a hoax. The point is, Who's doing this, and, and, and what, how serious does that, and what, what contribution does that make to the discussion? Now, the Raelians are not a small sect. They claim about 75,000 people, and their material is available in 18 languages, one of which is Hebrew. Okay. 
So keeping all of this in mind, let's go back and revisit the question about cloning. And the way I had initially um, expressed it is, should we be moaning about cloning or should we be joyous about cloning as Jews, as humans, as parents, or as children? New technologies force us to make irrevocable decisions. And therefore, I think it's imperative that as we stand on the brink of an area of, of such new technology, we bring these discussions to the discussions, the full weight of our wisdom and insight as it is informed by our religious and cultural heritage as well as by the scientific endeavor. Accordingly, any discussion of ethical issues must go beyond questions of technical halakha as it pertains to individual cases and include a serious exploration of the consequences of decisions taken and the implications they may have for the future. I mentioned earlier that in the fall of 2000, the Torah Umada Journal had a forum entitled Judaism, Genetic Engineering, and the Cloning of Humans. There were 11 participants, and a number of the respondents essentially focused on the aspects that we talked about earlier. Uh, the quote I have from Michael Broyd was indeed from that article, Rabbi Steinberg, uh, 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 Abraham Steinberg, Dr. Steinberg, also reiterates his permissive attitude toward cloning, obviously, presuming it was perfected. Of course, he's aware of all the safety issues. But taking issue with this perspective, uh, Kenny Waxman, who was a former uh, rabbi at Einstein, states, twinning, the making of man seems to meet no valid and ethically appropriate human need, which is arguable, and hence, to my mind, appears problematic <coughs> theologically. And in a very elegant and thoughtful essay, Eitan Fiorino, who I understand was invited to participate in this uh, program but was not available, reframes the context. Arguing within the confines of halakha, says Fiorino, it is probably easier to be a proponent of cloning. And from the perspective of Rabbi Soloveitchik's Adam One, cloning can certainly be viewed as increasing man's dignity. Adam One. However, Fiorino continues, the idea that progress, substitute here Bakanovsky's process perhaps, has any intrinsic ability to increase human dignity is difficult when viewed in light of humanity's undignified moral failings during the past 50 years of great technological achievement. Fiorino expresses opposition to cloning on moral grounds and based on its departure from the normal biology of reproduction. In the absence of a clear halachic precedent, either favoring or opposing cloning, he argues, cloning falls in the category of reshut, the permitted, requiring us perhaps to look beyond the strictly legalistic interpretation of halacha and to evoke essentially super-halachic concepts. In this case, an ethical argument can be constructed upon the sharp biologic difference that distinguishes cloning from essentially all other forms of assisted reproduction. Human reproduction is sexual. The resulting child has a mixture of both parents' genetic material. Assisted reproductive technologies such as fertilization are simply a shift of geography in which the location and where the fertilization takes place. The Genesis story, however, describes in the creation of man and woman 
tells us as follows: Alkenya azov ish et avivi etimo, vidavak be ishto, vahayule basarachad. Therefore shall man leave his father and his mother and shall cleave unto his wife, and they shall become as one flesh. Rashi tightly links the creation of the child with the union of the parents. And they shall become as one flesh, Rashi says. The child is formed by both of them, and it is there through the creation of the child that they become as one flesh. Indeed, the rabbis tell us in the Talmud, and this is in Nida Lamed Aleph Aleph, Shlosha Shutafim Yesh Ba'adam Hakadosh Baruchu the Aviv Ve'imo. Three partners are in man. The Holy One, blessed be He, the Father and the Mother. There need always be three in the room of creation of a child a relationship of each to the other and of each to God. But the biology of cloning is completely different. Cloning is a form of asexual reproduction, and in that context, Eitan Fiorino says, does not represent the union of two individuals. It is therefore not, in quotes, an act of creation and at odds with the Jewish conception of creation. In thinking about this passage, I began to understand something that's always perplexed me personally. And that brings us back again to the question of Milah. Why did the imperfection that God had the male born with have to be the foreskin? Why the foreskin? And it occurred to me that it's the foreskin, the Arla, that represents our covenant with God taken specifically from the male reproductive organ because it's this organ that participates in the shutafut, in the partnership of creation, which represents the ultimate bond between man and woman. And it's therefore this organ that man was mandated to improve upon in the process of creation. So let us return to where we began. Assistance to an infertile couple will bring joy of children into their lives and may allow them at long last to fulfill the mitzvah of pruravu. A distressed woman is desperate to bear a child, and the question becomes, is the fact that cloning may be the only alternative sufficient to make it acceptable? I don't want to say no, I don't want to say never, but I do want to say not now. Human and molecular cloning has the potential to open a world of possibilities in the development of therapies for heretofore incurable disorders, and such outcomes are both exciting and enticing. New studies in Israel are very encouraging. Uh, in an article which appeared just about a week ago in the foreword describes, uh, in fact, two important breakthroughs that were carried on in Israel. Of course, in Israel, it's pretty easy to carry out the experiments because there's very little limitation. Uh, one had to do with uh, getting uh, cells which were stem cells to work in rats. So we don't have to go into the details, but making some progress in terms of embryonic stem cell technology for the treatment in Parkinson's. And the other had to do uh, with a company called Gamita Cell, uh, in which they've actually made a commercial product with stem cells, which appears to have some, uh, some success uh, in treatment of cancer. 
this is the article that, that they're referring to. Um, at the same time in Israel, there's a discussion now on the, bioeth on the ethics of the bioethicists. Uh, and in particular, and the reason I mentioned this, there has been a lot of discussion, and, and I really can't take a position on this. In fact, I, I emailed Avi Ravitsky, who's a close friend of mine and who has just been appointed to this committee to see if I could find out any more, but uh, he didn't give me any information. Um, Michelle Ravel, and this could not happen here, who is the chairman of the Bioethics Committee, is a scientist. Well, that's fine. He's also... Chair, uh, he's chair, and he's also the scientific chair of Interfarm Biotechnology Company, which supports a portion of his research, and he owns stock in the company. So, you know, this kind of thing becomes problematic. So, in general, as I said, while there's a lot of positive, there are also a number of uh, questions, of, even in terms of what's going on in Israel. And everything we've said so far, uh, I think, leads us to understand that responsible decision-making really requires that we look at the big picture. The issues respect to cloning go really far beyond iron out, ironing out the details. Um, they have to do with the implications for individuals and families, for the core of society and the future of global health. And even before we get there, any discussion of cloning must take into account the road taken because there is a road we can't take. Limited clinical data support the efficacy of most cloning procedures. The results of human gene therapy trials have been abysmal. There's no other way to describe them. Some of you may be familiar with uh, incidents in Philadelphia and elsewhere. A large number of gene therapy trials and protocols have essentially been shut down. How do we choose patients for human trials? By what criteria do we decide? Who will parent the first candidate human clones? For gene therapies in the absence of any other avenue for treatment, in the case of a life-threatening disease, we might say this serves as a workable hypothesis. But this having been said, I would argue that while the potential for gene therapy to alleviate human suffering may be unparalleled in its scope, the potential abuses of molecular cloning are even more dangerous than those of human cloning. Human cloning involves duplicating the genome with all its imperfections. Molecular cloning offers the possibility of manipulating the genome, and we must then consider the distinction of blurring between what might be disease and what might really be eugenics. Enthusiasm for cloning expressed by rabbis and Jewish ethicists, tempered as it is by the warning that it's not right, predicates on assumptions about the feasibility of perfecting human cloning without violating ethical principles. However cogent these discussions have been, the discussion of larger issues has, to my mind, been far from sufficient. We ought not avoid the challenges, and we ought not focus on the extremes, such as Luddite fears of technology or armies of Hitler populating the earth. At the same time, the adoption of a technology that has the power to so profoundly change the future begs for a great deal of Yeshua Hada'at. The challenge neither to condemn cloning nor to hastily embrace it charges us to reflect on how and if its practice can meet the ethical and moral standards to which we were committed. In closing, let us revisit the Rabbi Soloveitchik's Lonely Man of Faith. The Rav writes, man reaching for the distant stars is acting in harmony with his nature 
which was created, willed, and directed by his maker. It is a manifestation of obedience to, rather than rebellion against God. Genesis 1 tells us that God commanded us to replenish the earth and subdue it. Rav Shamshan Rafael Hersh interprets the phrase to subdue the earth, the Kivshuha, as calling on man to master, appropriate, and transform the earth for the benefit of mankind. Our mastery of the earth must be for the benefit of mankind. Man reaching for the stars is in consonance with his nature. In reaching, we endeavor to subdue the earth, but the benefit of mankind must form our guiding principle. But transforming the earth for the benefit of mankind requires that we take care not to reach beyond the grasp of any given moment. In so doing, we manifest our obedience rather than rebellion against God. Thank you.